0: Growing up with an MD father and an MD herself, Dr. Miriam Mills shares her take on the relationship between the MD and DO communities. She talks about the distrust on both sides, the discrepancies in funding for research, and the slogan, if I didn't learn it in medical school, it's not important. She shares a keen insight into the vital importance of research in the field of manual medicine to preserve the osteopathic identity. Enjoy a jovial and informative conversation with Dr. Miriam Mills.
1: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode 65 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. We are bringing back a special guest from a previous episode, number 55, titled, Wasn't AT Still an MD Too? Dr. Miriam Mills, MD, is back to have a discussion about the relationship between DOs and MDs, as well as sharing with us her typical treatment sequence for the child and adult. As a brief refresher, Dr. Mills has been a pediatrician for over 40 years. She has completed over 1,200 hours of CME in OMM and was named a fellow of the Cranial Academy in 2018. She is a national and international lecturer on both pediatric and OMM topics. She has over twenty publications and currently owns her own practice called Mills Manual Medicine, founded in twenty nineteen. Happy twenty twenty three, Doctor Mills, and thanks for coming back on the podcast.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for asking me back.
0: Yeah, thank you, Doctor Mills. It was kind of a kind of a last minute thing, but um, yeah, you're super generous with your time. So it's a great way to start the year talking to you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great. I'm glad.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Dahlia, yeah, if you wanna if you want to ask the introductory questions.
1: Yes. So it's been a little bit since you've been on here, but mm-hmm. anything everything changes with time. So is there a new book that you've found to be a favorite of yours recently?
2: Oh, those questions. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't oh, prep well, you well, we're... did I,
0: Dr. Mills? Sorry. Oh, uh...
2: Let's see, what am I reading now? The I started reading The Fire Next Time again by James Baldwin. And I've read a couple of novels by a woman who was diagnosed with ALS. Her name is Kai Emmons. And uh, she was diagnosed with ALS a couple of years ago. She's a... a classmate from 52 years ago when uh, three different years co-educated simultaneously at the um and she, she we call ourselves the first women at yale and she over the covid participated in a number of zooms with us and got me interested in reading her novels and she's written Several, but uh, two sensor her diagnosis and leading, one of them is called livid and one of them is called unleashed. And uh, she also has a very poignant um, blog and leading up to her death with dignity this week. Uh, I wow. actually was Monday. Uh, so, wow. Those are what I've been reading, and yeah. and her podcast Kai Emmons C A I E M M O N S is chronicling her embracing the normalcy of death, basically, and wow. and looking forward to him being released from her earthly body, and and it's just straightforward honesty about you know I'm going to miss these things and. You know, uh, these things aren't important anymore, that kind of stuff. And she has a wonderful husband who's been just nurturing to her and a filmmaker who has now been filming her final months all the way up to her demise. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. But it's been... It, it echoed a number of of life uh, changes in friends of mine too, who've lost partners. Just boom, boom, boom this holiday season. So, yeah, that's what's been yeah. on my
0: mind. Wow, that sounds like a, a fascinating read.
2: But and
0: I'm, I mean, obviously, both books, *Livid* and *Unleashed*, heavily influenced by her yeah. diagnosis of ALS.
2: Yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> know it. Um, but knowing it gives it a different depth. I mean, reading I it, it's, it's, uh, it, she doesn't speak of it, although the biographical thing in the final book does mention it.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank Thanks. you for sharing that.
1: That's very fascinating because I know death is a very common fear amongst a lot of us. So Oh yeah. Like-
2: and people don't talk about it. That's the thing. It's like you, and she was open to any question at all, you know? And that was just refreshing. It was like, really? Can I talk to you about this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Is that what her blog was? Her blog just a, an opportunity for people to ask her questions and then her to respond to them?
2: No. I, she did have a, the ab- availability for comments, but because we became Facebook friends and we also met in this zoom format, uh, we talk directly, uh, wow. you know, Facebook messenger and things. And mm-hmm. I tended to be a little more pointed having, you know, being a physician, having had cancer myself and mm-hmm. dealing with my friends who've died, I was quicker to jump in, you know, where Probably some other people were like, "Oh no, no, I don't want to go there with her." That what's embarrassing, and it's like, "Heck, she's she's experiencing it. She wants to share this." So, yeah, yeah that was that was a, a extremely um, profound experience. Yeah,
0: and and I I just have to ask a follow up question because I sure. I love learning from from people, and it sounds like. Um, Kai kind of had a lot to share. So if you could just maybe summarize what, what were some things that became very important to her um, towards the end of her life and what things maybe that she gave importance to before early on in her life now became secondary?
2: Um, fame was something that she decided wasn't all that important after all. Because she was a driving go-getter. I mean, she was the kind of person that would take on any challenge. And one of the things she loved was kind of the shock value of her willingness to dance naked, to to swim naked. And that goes all the way back to Yale days. But mm-hmm. um, the differences that she started focusing on were how important relationships were and love and caring and yeah. um, joy. She just, she kept talking. About, I mean, even the stupidest little things that she could find to, to talk about in a joyful way. Uh, even the things that we might consider to be um, just accentuating debilities she called workarounds you know the fact that she she had a son who devised a device that enabled her to continue typing long beyond when she would otherwise be able to use her hands because it was a ball bar als and so she lost her speech first and and so Mm -hmm. she could not eat and uh she she joked about having to tape her mouth shut at night with duct tape because you know, the CPAP that she was using didn't work with her mouth open. Anyway, she was just, she had a humor about her mm-hmm. that took things lightly, but savored the sweetness of relationships, mostly. I see.
1: That's very well said. And it kind of, in situations like that, it really does shape your outlook on life, but it also, like, provides new sources of motivation of things that you might have never thought you would have done before had um, this was like this happened and stuff like that. So that's really cool. And you said her son made a device uh, for her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: very interesting. Yeah.
2: And she was the the other thing is she said toward the end and, and I would say try to find her blogs because they're easy to find if you just Google that. But uh, the the other thing was just be unafraid, take risks, don't be afraid to fail. And I loved that mm. because I like, I like living that way myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great.
2: Yeah,
0: That's um, great. I mean, I think that's so wise. Um, I think mm-hmm. so many times we have such incredible potential, but sometimes, maybe oftentimes, it's those fears that hold us back. If you're a failure, yeah.
1: So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. Um, next, fun question you've probably heard before is Do you have any new movie or documentary recommendations? <laughs> 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 are, are you just we a workaholic, Doctor Mills? Breakfast Dr. Mel? at
2: Tiffany's. <laughs> while I was on vacation. I've never seen Breakfast at Tiffany's, and it was so ridiculous, but so sweet.
0: <laughs> What's it about? What's that? What's it about?
2: Oh, oh, it's um, gosh, I'm trying to remember the the actress now. It was like from the fifties. Uh, who is that actress? just beautiful young woman. Is it Audrey Hepburn? Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, yeah. And it just is basically a, a showcase of her of her capricious physicality and her beauty. Uh, and and she was this just wacko character that was very insecure and was was trying to hook up with rich men and uh, never finding happiness and in the end the man that that kept trying to pursue her that she ignored uh, but she considered a friend uh went out you know so it's a real schlocky mm. story but yeah it was great totally, <laughs> mindless. totally yeah. mindless
1: it's definitely a classic movie for sure yeah Uh, Last question, fun question, but actually all the questions tonight will be a fun question. But um, this last question is, I know that we just had the holiday season wrap up, but did you do anything like outside of your work, like any hobbies that you did that you enjoyed doing and you would like to share with us?
2: I went snowshoeing. (laughs) I'd never done that before. While I was, I was visiting my daughter's fiance's family And spending time with them there, getting married next October. And although I met them briefly once before, this was kind of, uh, oh, let's really get to know each other because we're going to be all in the same family on some level. And uh, they had a cabin uh, outside of uh, close to Winter Park, Colorado. And they they had snowshoes that we could take out in the middle of this lake that had frozen over, it's called Grand Lake that had frozen over. So that was fun. Yeah, that's great. Not much else, cooking and yeah, yeah. I enjoy cooking and so does my daughter. So that was fun too, to be able to share spices and recipes and things with them.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Dr. Mills. When, gosh, when I reached out to you after the new year and I said, hey, Dr. Mills, I don't have anybody for the podcast this week. Are you busy? <laughs> what do you want to talk about? <laughs> you know, one of the topics you mentioned was the, the relationship between osteopaths and allopaths, DOs and MDs. And mm-hmm. I think you're such a great person to talk about this relationship <laughs> because you yourself are an MD and in many ways, your practice is osteopathic. It's, it's OMM.
2: Yeah, it's 100% OMM now. I'm not doing general pediatrics anymore. Okay. Yeah. And
0: so I guess I'm curious, why, why did you want to talk about this topic? And specifically, um, you know, what did you want to share?
2: Well, I think from the perspective of having been in both worlds, And being a quote insider in some ways in both worlds, because I'm on the board of the Cranial Academy and I was on the uh, faculty at OSU osteopathic medical school. So I, I kind of hear the backstory grumblings of each about the other. And, and I, I've certainly experienced some of the, uh, the differences in approaches and credentialing and that kind of thing. I mean when I was uh when I was a kid my dad was an MD and the idea that I was brought up with which was pretty common back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, was that DOs were Students that couldn't get an medical school. And they didn't do hoop de do subspecialty concierge practices. They worked more often in rural uh, general practice settings. And there's that still that sort of superiority complex among MDs about that they're just better. And now that, I mean, fast forward, of course, the residencies are combined, but there's a huge history with a lot of of growing pains in developing a relationship and a mutual respect that still doesn't quite settle with either side because of that sense of, Uh, Those that were in the minority, the DOs, kind of have their own chip on their shoulder uh, because MDs tend to think, and as an osteopathic person, I still get this too. So I can definitely identify with DOs who are frustrated that they can't convince MDs. That there's really something to osteopathic manipulation. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I have a kid that had craniostenosis and uh, shortly after birth, really severe craniostenosis, and got surgery uh, on the sagittal suture and immediately went over to a helmet. And because the mother had done research on, she got my name from some international website. She looked me up and I was like, you know, 50 miles away from where she lived. And she herself sought me out, even though the orthotist that gave her a helmet and the neurosurgeon said, oh, no, 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 that's dangerous. And it was like the the helmet was malfitting and the person doing the helmet adjustment was making matters worse and didn't even have an idea of flexion extension and how these bones grow. And I was I was convinced, trying to convince the mother who was already convinced, but her father, the grandfather wasn't convinced. And so there's just this sense of, you know, what you do is dangerous. And I, I had patients that I would just beg to let me treat them. But, you know, if they don't want it, they don't want it. When, when they veer toward thinking that, oh, my gosh, you might do harm. So there's that distrust of what DOs do.
0: And Dr. Mills, why, why do you think there is that distrust? And and specifically to the, the case of the, the baby in the helmet, those physicians, did they know that, that the, um, the patient was going to an MD who was practicing manipulation? I, I would think that that would give them... Like a little bit more of, oh, well, they're M- they're an MD. They're-, they're on our side, but they're also doing manipulation, huh? Nah. Maybe I'll trust them a little bit more. Is it not like that?
2: No, it's a sense of fear of the unknown hmm. and fear of malpractice. Because if you screw up, it makes me look bad. And, you know, I'm the neurosurgeon and I carry the higher malpractice rate. I finally called the neurosurgeon. Couldn't even talk to the neurosurgeon. Talked to this. Sub, you know, their the assistant and said, Look, I carry malpractice too, buddy. You know, what? but oh. I, it's just, I Good think I mentioned you. in our last interview when I left the MD medical school and opened my own practice and started learning manipulation. And I was looking for somebody to join me to help me with the general pediatrics. And the MD that I interviewed had already interviewed with my previous boss at the MD medical school, who told her I'd gone off the deep end? Hmm. So it's like, you know, not only do they not trust me more because I'm an MD, but they think that I've gone bonkers because I would do this. (laughs) But, you know, that's of course changed, but it's the patients that have changed it. The patients come to me and go back and tell their doctor, look, you know, I'm going to go even if I have to pay cash and which is what they do. Cause I don't file insurance anymore. So there's that. And it's just the sense, the arrogance that MDs have about if they didn't learn it in medical school, it couldn't possibly be important. And you know, I just, I have so little patience for it, but it's still, and I will tell you this, that the, the, Distrust runs both ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you're aware of the, the California demo yes. back in yes. the 60s <laughs> and the 70s, where the MDs took, they offered the DOs an MD degree for like $65 or something and took over their medical school and essentially made it illegal to practice op- osteopathy in California until at the DO sued to get back the right to both practice it and teach it. And it took years. It was until, I think, 1977 that the California Supreme Court gave them back the right to to, to teach it and practice it and and credential uh out of state DOs who were moving to California. and So they're distrustful too. And I was a little surprised that they agreed to to combine the residencies. Uh, But I think what will happen now as a result of that is there's gonna be some cross-contamination and there'll be a little bit of that. Oh, I don't really like what the idea of cranial stuff, but would you work on my back? You know, that that I'm seeing. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'll work on your back. But meanwhile, you have headaches? Well, here, let me feel. Oh, I can tell your headache is here. Or, oh, I can tell you probably got hit from the left side. Man, good while ago, bad car accident. Yeah, how'd you know? You know, it's that kind of stuff that makes, convinces some people, not all, but...
0: Mm -hmm. And, And what would you say, Dr. Mills, from the DO perspective, what are some of our barriers to or biases maybe towards the allopathic, the MD community that you have seen or maybe experienced that you want to share?
2: Well, I think that's one of the main things is just a sense of not being seen as equal And one of the things that stands in the way of that is that, well, they don't have equal representation on on funding agencies. NIH doesn't have equal representation. So funding for research and the fact that they can't convince DOs that research can't be simply prospective double-blind crossover studies because there's a whole lot else going on in the effectiveness of the treatment, including the benefit of placebo effect. But um, I I think partly it's the reimbursement issues that the MD idea of, you know, if you're board certified, you get to be reimbursed at a different level. And like getting, getting board certified in OMM is a very different road to hoe. Um, you know that it, it, it's not all people that do OMM are board certified in it because mm-hmm. it's it's a high honor, much higher honor than taking a residency, taking a test, and you know, boom, you're board certified. There's there's differences between an FAAO and a you know competency certified. Uh, DO that's taken the tests. So th- that's the other thing is that it's a, it's a longer road to hoe and they're probably feeling somewhat like they're not giving respect for what they know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And when you're using the term DO and you're in osteopathic physicians, you're talking about osteopathic physicians who are practicing manipulation in their practice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Um,
1: So I was actually, so I have literally zero years of experience working with patients because obviously I'm a medical student, but based off of um, your guys' years of experience and stuff like that and all that you have all talked about, um, I'm kind of wondering if there's like an institutional factor, which you've pretty much been the undertone of what you had mentioned, Dr. Mills. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, if osteopathy and osteopathic medicine, um, actually, let me go back a little bit. So what I think of the backbone of knowledge, especially in the world, I think of universities because they really are the pioneers of new knowledge and research. So I'm wondering then, I feel like, would, do you think there'd be a little bit more acceptance if there was a hub of knowledge at leading institutions such as like Ivy League universities? For osteopathic medicine,
2: say that one more time, the very last part.
1: Um, so, do you think there'd be a little bit more acceptance of osteopathic medicine if there was a hub of knowledge being seated at leading institutions of knowledge, such as maybe Ivy League universities?
2: Oh, well, that's where the MD bias would not want to welcome that knowledge. That's true. Yes, it would be better if it were. And it's going to be years, and you, your generation is going to be the one to make the difference based on research, perhaps, but just more and more people becoming familiar with it. And what's happened, as you may know, is that there have been a lot more DO medical schools, new DO medical schools established than MD medical schools. And so they're going to be a lot more cross-contamination, as you want to call it, uh, at the level of residency once they meet each other, because more, more MDs are taking DO residencies. And there needs to be and I'm in this process right now with the Cranial Academy and, and Ben, you may be able to help me understand what's happening at the uh, AAO level. This, This modicum of knowledge about what it means to touch and how you get information through touch and how you can convey structural change that makes functional benefits, that idea is so totally foreign. You know, the three principles of osteopathy that, you know, form and function are related and you can change them uh, is totally foreign to MDs. And there is a cohort of MDs and they're becoming a greater number of them who are curious and interested and want to learn and empathetic to DO's plight of not getting understood. But um, until they can actually, you know, I went, I went back to medical school and took the DO courses with the first and second year students in manipulation, going to the lectures, going to the labs and, you know, taking the tests and then by what would have been my third year in medical school, they asked me to teach it because I was already on the faculty teaching other things. But that's, I i don't think we're going to convince the Ivy league schools or the, the de hoop, you know, Baylors and whatever medical schools until we get enough people in the trenches who get, to basic first and second year osteopathic principles of osteopathic touch. And we developed some videotapes for the cranial Academy to introduce MDs because they're, like me, allowed to take uh, first, you know, cranial, basic cranial course. But in medical school, you know it's a second semester, second year course, so any MD that takes a cranial course is dragging down the whole rest of the course trying to understand what the heck is going on, and I know that AAO is now developing some courses for that um, because there's a huge need, and that's where I think we're going to start maybe offering those courses at MD conferences, because if DOs start joining the uh, American Medical Association or even state associations where they say, let me put on, a, put on a course for you that introduces you to, brings you up to speed to at least get an idea of what, what changes can happen and why they happen you know so i think it's going to be an educational challenge first and and we cuz we've been beating our head against the wall trying to get the research in front of the md's and even even the research that i did i waited and waited and waited to get it published in a in a non-osteopathic journal because it was like you've got to get this out in front of them and they're still going to say, oh, well, it's just, you know, placebo effect. So it's um, it's going to take some time, but I, I've come to the realization, much as I did in in going through my friend Kai Emmons' uh, demise, that, you know, it ain't going to happen in my lifetime, and it's not all on my shoulders, but I can talk about it.
0: and we appreciate you talking about it Dr. Mills
2: does that make
1: any sense no it it makes perfect sense thank you so much
0: there there is a uh, Dr. Sarah James I had her on the podcast I forget which episode it was but she I believe she's family I think she's double boarded family medicine OMM Mm -hmm. but she host courses for mds teaching them what is omt and teaches them how to do it teaches oh cool where, is she's a she's where a does D. she do work she is in i think she's in madison wisconsin okay yeah cool she's well there's
2: gonna be more and more and more of that
0: yeah and she is part of the aao and i'm not sure how often but it's definitely a yearly thing where she has courses for MDs who are interested in learning more about OMT. They can participate and learn.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it's outside of the medical school setting. So- yeah, I
2: think she's doing it at the AAO. In fact, I think I might go to that convocation because I'm interested in getting more involved on that level because so many of the cranial course, cranial academy courses are kind of esoteric, which mm-hmm. is lovely, but, you know, it's... It, it really does speak to the choir. And uh, Mm -hmm. the other thing that I think is challenging for the DO medical schools that are being established is that the faculty is spread pretty thin in terms of faculty that's really expert in OMT. And uh, a number of them don't emphasize it as much. And now that there's the combined residency, the you may be able to help me with this, Ben, as to whether or not there's there's some question in my mind about whether the the boarding even is going to require DOs to pass the manipulation portion of their boards in order to get licensed. This is I'm 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 fuzzy on that. You can can um,
0: can you ask that question one more time?
2: Okay, in. number of the do medical schools omt is de-emphasized and a good number of the students aren't particularly interested in it and because faculty is spread so thin they're not they're not stimulated and you know uh to to really buy into it Mm -hmm. and now that the combination of the the boarding of the residencies is happening there I'm under the impression that there is some some leniency about passing the manipulation portion of of the the test you have to take when you graduate from medical school. Am I right? Or
0: mm-hmm. so the, the com you're talking about the complex passing the complex. Is there right. leniency in right? Well I mean that's a standardized test. Yeah, And there is peppered throughout the complex exam, OMT questions embedded within the system's questions. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: it's not a specific section per se.
2: Okay. So you could pass it without passing the the OMM part.
0: You could, you could, if you did really well on all the other sections and didn't do so well on the the OMM section, Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, that's a minor point, but but the fact that the, the faculty at this point is spread thin because it is medical schools. Yeah. And, and,
0: and you're right. I mean, there are a number of osteopathic medical schools every year popping up all over the country. There's a new one. I think that's just starting in Billings, Montana, um, and another one in Missoula, Montana, and they're just popping up all over the place. And we only have seven o specific residencies in the country.
2: Mm-hmm. And how many plus one residencies
0: plus one. That's a good question. I think the yeah. Mayo clinic is one. We're one here at MSU. Well,
2: OSU I'm,
0: is one OSU. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I'm not sure that Barnabas is in the Bronx.
2: I think it is. Yeah. Is
0: it? Mm-hmm. Um, Las Cruces. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um. And this, anyway, uh,
2: you can tell me because Michigan is the one that's done taught both. What's the relationship between the DO and the MD training at Michigan? Is it one path or another?
0: You know, I, we are here at Michigan State. This is, and I've told the faculty <laughs> that have been here their whole lives, they are so fortunate and privileged to be able to practice manipulation here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: one because of the history of the osteopathic medical school which has been here since I think, 1969 and then just some huge names in the OMM world um Phil Greenman mm-hmm. um, Bob Ward um, we have Dr. DiStefano here currently
2: mm. and so
0: there's just incredible tradition and the we and because of the, the osteopathic medical school. And whatever the people are drinking in the water here in Michigan, they stay here. A, l- a lot of them that attend the osteopathic medical school are from Michigan, and a lot of them stick around here. So there's this stronghold of DOs here, specifically in Lansing. Like, it's incredible. And yeah. the, the osteopathic education that Dahlia is currently receiving is, is excellent because and I'm biased because I help teach it, but <laughs> but uh, you know the, the clinicians are seeing hundreds of patients every week with all kinds of pathology, and then they're okay. going into the lab and sharing this clinical experience with the students. So it's not theory;
2: it's yeah. it's hands-on
0: experience.
2: Yeah, that's how it works here because we have medical students that are required to take clinical OMM here. Uh- too and it's being taught and the residents run uh work in the clinic as well but
0: but but that was a very long-winded roundabout way to answer your question but Mm -hmm. i think what happens is is that because there's such a deal presence and because even the members of the community here in lansing around michigan state know what omm is
2: yeah the
0: mds are like oh tell me more and then, like we have an MD pediatrician in the, um, an MD pediatrician who is every day um, consulting OMM for caput and head molding and torticollis.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, because she's seen the benefits and the patients have asked for it. And then she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to start consulting.
2: That's great. That's great. So, but is there this... no formal relationship between the MD and the DO school?
0: um dahlia you could probably speak more to that i yeah go ahead
1: yeah so i think we're still just like each college or school is doing their own thing like our do program we have our own curriculum our own um just our own way of doing things in our own like schedule and timeline before board exams um Mm -hmm. and then the college of human medicine at msu also has their own timeline their own way of grading and everything but we do get the same similar professors that teach the same courses. So we'll have anatomy professors teaching um, us for like a certain semester, and then they teach the MD programs too. So they have a mix of both, and it's the same content. Yeah, so it just goes to show just how similar we are in the profession. right. Yeah, and just the only thing is we have uh, like one hour a week where we do OMM lab, so it's very, very interesting for
2: sure. Just one hour? Oh wow! Oh,
1: actually, let me—I take that back. One hour and twenty minutes. Oh. I want to, yeah, one hour and twenty minutes for OMM. The week. students here
2: would get one hour lecture and two hours lab oh. every week. Yeah, cool. both first and second year. So we yeah, do- they got immersed in it yeah we
1: do recorded lectures so like it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a you know we do like we watch the lectures before we get into lab so then all we have to do is just see the demonstration by the professors and then we just go ahead and do it and stuff like that so it's a very interesting concept and dynamic
0: Hmm. Then, then the students dr mills who are a little bit more interested in omm or who would like to learn omm a little bit better and potentially utilize it in their practice they have opportunities to do the student omm clinic which is a free clinic for members of the community that's every tuesday Mm -hmm. from five to eight and then we have a sports omt clinic where the club athletes at michigan state can get treated and the trainers will send them to the students to be trained to be cool. treated
1: yeah that's great so okay. there's a lot of
0: great opportunities
1: and i think talking to my friends who are at other do schools like they don't some of them do not have that early access to hand like to applying what we've learned in omm lab to yeah. patients and stuff so it's a really exciting opportunity that we have over here
2: mm-hmm
0: yeah, and and the residents at the ONMM residency at Michigan State, we rotate. We do family medicine, inpatient, outpatient at Sparrow Hospital, and the College of Human Medicine. The MD medical students will rotate through there, and so I've I've worked with a number of them, and and I'll tell them my my specialty, and they're like, Oh, what is that? We've heard about that. Tell tell us a little bit more, and so you know, it's, it's an cool. opportunity to, to talk to the students a little bit about it, but that's uh, yeah. True.
2: That's, I think that what's going to be the salvation is just the cross, cross pollination,
0: you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, going
2: to take a while uh-huh. and it'll, I mean, right now the, the DOs do rotations at uh, one particular hospital that also has MD students and residents, but they're not allowed to do OMT on their patients there because they don't have full-time faculty supervision by DOs all the time. So it's really, it, yeah, it's going to have to change, and it will. And I'm impatient, but it's going to change because yeah. this, um, there, there is too much demand by the patients and there are too many people that need it that are going to get it from somebody else if they don't get it from a do they're going to get it from a physical therapist or massage therapist or you know and that's a whole other topic of conversation the relation but the non-physicians that uh do's and mds are seeing what they call scope creep and uh I, for one, am not nearly as threatened by it because I think that there are a lot of people out there with good hands and, mm-hmm. you know, they're not really competing for the patients. There's so many patients and that on some level, we need to come to terms with the fact that if we don't give them, that is non-physicians, some place at the table, they're going to continue to just do whatever they do, you know? mm mm-hmm. and- Anyway, that's that's my bias, and that's a whole other topic. But uh,
0: Dr. Mills, you you have done pretty extensive research throughout your career, and you men- mentioned that you published some of your research in MD journals, but you felt like the response was not not what you had hoped for. Do you think that research is important, but not the key to educating the MD community about? Osteopathic manipulative medicine? Is it more those courses that Dr. Sarah James is putting on for MDs interested in in OMM? I don't don't need
2: to downplay research at all. I think really that is what's gonna convince the Ivy League schools or you know, the Baylors or whatever. Um, and and it's gonna require getting more funding. And that's starting to happen. The NIH is getting more DO representation on it. It's just a slow process, and the funding that um, you know that the DO medical schools, many of them were not uh, state universities, so students that went to those schools paid hefty tuitions mm-hmm. and. Uh, and there there, well, there, wasn't funding available to do a lot of research at those schools. I mean, the fact that I'm still, now that I'm retired from that faculty, I'm still the one that has more research to my name in the OMM department is sad. So, yeah, the, the research has got to happen, of course. It's got to happen. It's got to be well designed. I mean, Brian Degenhart's doing a wonderful job um, at uh, A.T. Still. Uh, Heading up his, uh, gosh, what's the name of his his initiative? He's got a whole research organization that he's been working on. That's getting funding separate from AOA and AAO, but uh,
0: and I think isn't there the University of North Texas? Don't they have a research center, a research center as well?
2: They (laughs) do. And and I'm familiar. Uh, there's an OB-GYN there that's done a lot of research that used to used to be in Tulsa I can't think of her name now but uh, yeah research has got to happen I don't mean to downplay it at all because ones like me that get interested in it who go back and say to their colleagues gee this is really really amazing their colleagues are still going to say well show me the research you know So yeah, it's got to happen. It's got to happen. There's so many opportunities for that. And there's so many ideas that are easy to do, especially on children, because they make such huge changes in such a short amount of time. Yeah.
0: So what what would you say for, because I've heard people say, well, OMT research is so darn difficult to do because no matter what you do for the control group, it's still going to affect the tissue.
2: Well, my idea that I haven't seen taken off is is you need MD medical students to do the control treatment. (laughs) I'm not kidding. It's got to be somebody that doesn't, because if you're a DO person with osteopathic hands and you put your hand on a patient, you can't help but treat them. You just can't help it, even if you're holding back. So, you know, even a massage therapist that has training, but somebody with absolutely no training can hmm. do light touch or whatever uh, I, that's that's my thought is it needs to be somebody with no training
0: That's interesting. yeah, it'd be challenging they're so darn busy we'd have to pay them a lot of money
2: <laughs> An empty <MD laughs> medical student they need the money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh wow. Well, anything else Dr. Mills that you wanted to mention regarding the relationship between DOs and MDs?
2: I'm just optimistic that it's going to that it's going to get better over time and then and yet, you know, it we're at we we osteopathic physicians, we, I, which I can consider myself, are always on the brink of extinction if we don't fight for it. You know, it's just, it's got to be an ongoing initiative.
0: Hmm. What makes you say that? Because I feel like, you know, and I, I love my colleagues here to death, but because this is such a bubble and it's such a stronghold, I feel like sometimes we don't think like that. So can you just expound on that just a little bit?
2: Well, maybe it's my work in the Cranial Academy and the ongoing political argument that's going on ever since Upledger broke with the DOs who said only DOs can do cranial work. I -hmm. think they're just going to be more and more uh, non-physicians that do manipulation. I mean, I get physical therapy from having had surgery for cancer and, and that physical therapist is always learning things that are pretty osteopathic, you know, it's like, so it's either gonna be taken over by them because it's not validated in the medical community and it comes down to insurance companies that are run by MDs. It comes down to reimbursement. It comes down to pharmaceutical companies that have a hold on insurance money. And that's, you know, and preventative medicine is the key to the future of health but, shoot, we can't even get a handle on global warming, you know? <laughs> so that That's where it's it's going to have to be a decision that um, the professionals are going to have to not sit in their ivory tower uh, if it's going to be understood and supported by the powers that be that pay the bills, and you know insurance companies pay the bills based on what pharmaceutical companies want and and what MDs think deserve to be reimbursed.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if I could put you on the spot, are you in disagreement with um, Up Ledger that only? DO physicians should be able to do, I guess, cranial. or. Upledger
2: was the one that started teaching physicians, and he was ostracized by the DOs because he did. And, no, I think that –
0: He was teaching MD physicians?
2: No, he was teaching physical therapists and massage therapists. Still does. I mean, he's not alone, but the Upledger Institute – Yeah. Ha, there Let's are see. far more practitioners of, quote, craniosacral therapy, yes. which is what he taught, than there are physicians who do cranial osteopathy. Yeah. And although physicians who do cranial osteopathy, the Cranial Academy, want to call it something different, osteopathy in the cranial field, mm. it's, It is more esoteric. And yes, I do know more than, and I see patients that are not messed up by, but not completely treated by some of the people that have done craniosacral on them. But I think this is where I was kind of getting into, if we don't recognize that they have a place at the table, we're going to lose it to them. I see. So, no, I agree. (laughs) And, And it doesn't make me popular among some MD colleagues. So I don't talk about that very much.
0: You agree that?
2: That we cannot be so super special that only physicians can provide manipulative medicine. Yeah, Yeah. Manual medicine is not just the purview of physicians because not all physicians wanna bother with it. It takes time. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I
0: mean, a lot, at least here in Michigan, and maybe this is unique, um, because of MSU, a lot of PTs do manual therapy. Mm -hmm. A lot of them attend our courses.
2: Yes, and I do think, this is why I want to go to the AAO convocation, because somebody told me that they are accepting physical therapists, massage therapists to take the courses now, whereas the Cranial Academy would not dare. Yeah. And, and so I really think I want to get back to the, come on, let's just get the word out, buddy, you know, and that's
0: absolutely right. Um, I just mm-hmm. talked, I had a podcast episode last night with, um, Dr. Stefano, who's the program chair this year. Yeah. And she mentioned that specifically because I thought, well, it's only, it's only people from neuromusculoskeletal medicine. And she said, absolutely not. No, it's, it's other physicians, neurology, family medicine, Obviously, OMM, but also like acupuncturists. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that she mentioned physical therapists, but Mm
2: -hmm.
0: pediatricians.
2: I I mean, it's so powerful in pediatrics. It's so easy. It makes lifelong changes. It's profound and easy to do research on kids because they make changes so fast. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. my soapbox.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sticking to it. (laughs)
2: That's
0: great. That's great. Dahlia, did you, did you want to ask anything or did you have any comments or questions?
1: Um, no, I just had this random thought. So I do apologize for saying this, but I think of, um, OMT as like kind of a, like analogous to a language. So there's several, a few, like kind of, you know, we still have a long way to go until like, you know, osteopathic manipulative treatment is accepted amongst everyone. But I think there's also another, um, Threat is a strong word, but another uh, concern is like our current osteopathic medical students. There is a certain percentage of them that might not practice OMT or not might not use OMT in their practice. Mm-hmm. So it kind of reminds me of a language because it's like once you don't use it, you lose it. And then um, it kind of reminds me too of like small civilizations that do have languages and we lose languages every single day because it's Mm -hmm. not being used and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So that's another thing to think about too.
2: Well, it's also like riding a bike, Mm -hmm. you know, that's somewhere in there. And once, I mean, the fascination of going from working on bones to muscles to ligaments to fluid to, you know, fascia to fluid, however you want to, to energy, you know, all, all of that stuff, the intention and the connection with the patient and the compassion that comes through, you get that. I think when you learn OMT and I think DOs who don't do OMT in their practice because they don't have time for it or whatever, are still sensitized to, to compassion that MDs aren't because of that experience with touch. Very true. um, I, that's what I tell, I used to give the, the first year students their first, lab on osteopathic touch. And that's what I tell them is that, you know, this is a gift and you're just, just what you learn now in these first two years of touching each other is going to make you more compassionate to your patients, make you more, you know, that the MDs are taught that, that the whole story is in the history. Yeah, right. It's not. If you really are paying attention to the physical, you get a whole other chapter of information that you wouldn't. And if, you know, the more you practice it, the more you can feel it from across the room or whatever. But still, I think what you learn, you don't totally lose. But yeah, it it does kind of atrophy. <laughs> but
1: <laughs> I like the analogy, by the way. Yes. <laughs> but very well said. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, great, great analogy, Dahlia. Great uh, commentary. Dr. Mills, we are at an hour.
2: Yeah, we don't need to talk anything more about anything else. (laughs) We just have to get together again. (laughs) We will,
0: because this is fantastic. And there's so much learning for me. And and I won't speak for Dahlia. But um, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. I really appreciate your insights. And well, thanks for
2: giving me a sounding board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, people really did appreciate the, the last episode that uh, we recorded. So,
2: oh, so I'm good. sure
0: this one as well will be very popular. So,
2: Well, thank you for your time.
1: Yes. I very much enjoyed all the clinical pearls and insight you have given us and to the audience. So thank you so much, Dr. Mills.
2: All righty. Until okay. next time.
0: Until next time, Dr. Mills, you have a great evening.
1: Have a great evening, too. evening.
0: Thank you. Bye, now. Bye.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Miriam Mills on the triumphs of osteopathic medicine, while also noting that there is still a long way to go until there is an embracing acceptance. We also hope you enjoyed understanding the similarities between MDs and DOs and what sets them apart. Specifically, osteopathic medicine and its utilization of OMT, which provides the opportunity for the physician to come to the realization that there is more to the story than what's on the patient's record. Have a great evening. Take care.